0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast, brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy development and implementation. Hello, I'm Des Deerlove, and this is a Thinkers 50 podcast. My guest today is Niloufar Merchant. Niloufar is ranked among the top 50 management thinkers by the Thinkers 50. She has personally launched more than 100 products, netting $18 billion in sales, and has worked for companies ranging from Apple, to desk. She's the author of three books, the latest of which is called The Power of Onlyness, Make Your Wild Ideas Mighty Enough to dent the World. Need for welcome. Thank you. So let's talk about the new book. I really like this book because it's a book about ideas and it's about how ideas have an impact. But onlyness has a very specific, I mean, it's, a, it's your own word, it's something you've called. It is.
1: I coined the term in uh, 2011, 2012. And it has a very specific definition, doesn't it? It does. Uh, only and no, so I'll take it apart. Each of us stands in a spot in the world only you stand in, a function of your history and experience, visions and hopes. From that place is where all new ideas come. But a lot of our onlys over the many years have been not counted. And so the NES part is talking about how now in distributed networks you can actually scale ideas to get mighty enough to dent the world. So only knows is the blend of how do those original, fresh, new, disruptive takes which almost always come from left field actually scale and actually are able to uh, make a real difference in the world now so that every single one of us could count. And I I mean, I was interested
0: to notice in the book that you you make a
1: distinction between onlyness
0: and uniqueness. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain that? Sure.
1: So there were a couple words that I had considered when I was first trying to coin the term onlyness, because I wasn't trying to coin a a term. I usually make fun of those people. Mm -hmm. Um, But there were words like talent that was an alternative, for example. But talent is quite often qualified, meaning we'll say someone is talented when they have the right degree or we'll say someone is talented when they've worked at the right company. And so quite often that's qualified. And unique is a word I had to toss out too because unique is quite often relative. So uh, for example, uh, just using a personal example, I'll often be called unique as a woman board member and that'll be, you know, a commentary made in a boardroom and I'll think, you know, the reason that I'm actually adding value to this particular situation is not at all the fact that I'm a woman, which by the way is 52% of the US population so not at all unique, but because I've actually shipped a bunch of products and I have a really strong go to market strategy background. And so when they were calling me unique and I'm using air quotes in that second They were they were not using it in the way I would want it to be used, which is what is that value only you can bring, and how do I spot it and see it and reward it and bring it forward because we need more ideas in the world.
0: So I think I saw in the book the the a word like signature. So it's it's kind of your signature concoction. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So I use the term um, that it's a combination of your history and experience, as well as your vision and hopes, And, and I think about this as an intersection. Uh, of these two things. If you think about a big part of our identity is quite often how we were born to things. So our age, our sex, our color, our socioeconomic status is almost always a function of who we were born to. But the things that actually pull us forward into the world are the things we care about, our visions and hopes. So I think about onlyness as that intersection, that signature concoction of everything you've been, which is where your story starts, to everything you aspire to, and that's how your story progresses. And
0: interestingly, you tell a couple of personal stories at the beginning of the book. Uh, I do, which you know, which kind of uh, really illustrate that point. I think I'm thinking of the arranged marriage in particular. Can yeah. you
1: do? Do you mind telling us that no. story? Again? In fact, it was the first time I had shared the story. Uh, I was writing the book because I originally wasn't going to be in the book. I really thought about loneliness as a, a way to show and highlight the stories of other people. And then somebody had read chapters two and chapters three. And uh, to to help me validate an idea and and said, well, where are you? Because you're showing the underwear of these people, you know. And I said, well, I'm not going to be in the book. And they said, no, 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 no. You don't get to uh, be so revealing of other people and not also be equally revealing of yourself. So the story is I was supposed to get an arranged marriage when I was 18 years old uh, to a very wealthy man so that my mother would be provided for. And I was the child, as is true in a lot of Islamic culture and a lot of Indian culture, there's almost always a child that will be, like, designated. You'll be the one that marries well.
0: But you you moved to the States by then. Your, yeah, your mother I li- was widowed. She was on her island. Yeah, so
1: she had been divorced when divorced. I was two. And uh, and I lived in America since I was four and a half. So I was always a, a child who lived in a very traditional household but went to a very American school and, and tried to live between these two culture points, trying to blend both. Um, but I had always accepted that, As long as I could get an education, I was also willing to abide by the rules of my family. And uh, at one point, this all kind of came to a head, which is where the story picks up. And I was supposed to, the marriage had been arranged, and uh, I said, well, of course you've asked him if I can go to college. Because at this point, I'd been going to community college sort of biding time until I could go to quote unquote real college. And uh, uh, they said, no, 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 we're not willing to ask him. We got a house for your mom, you know? but we're not going to ask him about education. I said, well, you know, he's going to say yes to you. If I have to go negotiate all this on my own, it's going to take me a year or two or more. And they said, yeah, we're not going to do that. So I walked out in this moment that I thought would last, I don't know, a minute or five minutes or a very, very short period of time. And uh, it took, its well, we've never really reconciled to this day. Wow.
0: That's, yeah, That's very powerful. But that was the onlyness, that was the part of you that needed to, despite you know, coming from the background that you came from and even accepting some of the, some of the norms, that, that, that point at which you step out and say, this is who I really am.
1: Yeah, this is who I really am, and I claim this idea for myself, right? So for those of us who have been told um, as women that your role is a certain thing, or as a person of color, or as a young person, or there's almost any demographic group has been told at one point or another um, that you don't count, your only doesn't count. And you get to decide at one point in your life, what does count for you? And that's the start of your own journey of onlyness. And interestingly too, what
0: I like about the book is it's a very much a book that talks about, effectively it's talking about the democratization of ideas. Because in the past, if the CEO had an idea or if somebody, senior management had an idea, it was going to get listened to a lot more than than somebody further down the organization. A lot of people were, and their ideas were invisible. So. The book is very much sort of championing people and saying anyone with a good idea can can begin to get some traction with it, but clearly, this is a moment in time. This is there's a reason why this book is timely. What what's changed in the world? Why that
1: is the case now, and why it's no longer just about position. Well, there's two things. Um, first is um, the reason that we conform to society as it's. Understood is because we really don't have another choice. If we have to choose between advocating for our own ideas and belonging to other people, belonging wins every time. If you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging is the third step of ideas is the fifth. And so what's been happening for a long time is those of us who have original takes But if we have to pick between that and, I don't know, having a job and being able to survive in our community, we pick having a job and surviving in our community. And so our ideas largely get pocketed. But now that you can find people like you, you can feel far less alone and take those risks necessary to actually innovate. So that's a big deal that you can find people. The second one is before distributed networks, most of those ideas that were born of onlys really couldn't scale. In order to have scale before, you almost always had to join an organization, whether it was government or business or uh, so on, to figure out how to get an idea to be big. And now we don't need capital. We don't need organizations. Not saying those things aren't helpful, but you don't need them. And so all of a sudden, the thresholds that you needed to pass through in order to get you know a big idea through has changed. Okay. So people listening to this podcast,
0: people who are going to read the book, I'm sure, want to know how do they identify that? Their- their own loneliness, you said you had that 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 kind of that, that moment when you realized that you you weren't just going to conform I mean I think you were about 18 at the time mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people out there who probably have been conforming for a long time but perhaps inside them there's this idea that there's something they want to say or they've got an idea how do we actually begin to get to grips with that how do we make that a reality
1: well I think that first step is just a Acknowledge that you do have your own point of view. So instead of looking out at the comparison world of am I like Des or like Stewart or of the other thinkers 50? What is it I distinctly have to bring and what is it that gives my own work meaning that pushes me that I'm drawn to over and over again? Those are all clues to your onlyness. I'll tell you my um, as I was writing the book I shared this book with a couple of people uh, towards the end and I'll never forget, one of the top thinkers, 50 people, said to me, this idea is so audacious, I wouldn't write it. Hmm. And I actually had this- flip- Can you tell
0: us who said
1: that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't embarrass the person, but it's somebody who who you you celebrate quite often. And okay. um, and I was, I was so surprised and shocked, but really wanting to listen, you know, like, oh, maybe he's trying to help me kind of thing. And I had to go through this long process because the sentence that he got really frustrated by was where I said, um, each of us now has something to contribute to the world, quite possibly even all of us do, all 7.5 million, billion of us on earth. And he really thought that was an audacious um, phrase, and so I thought about cutting it out and thought, maybe that is too audacious, you know, there's a sort of self-guidance in my head, like, ah, that does sound kind of crazy, right? And then I had to go back to, but why have I written this book? Why have I been chasing this idea for, you know, the last five years? It's because I actually do believe the problem is not because people don't have ideas to contribute. The problem is the systems are not set up to actually enable those ideas out. And so this is why I'm writing the book is to encourage, obviously, people to step into their fullness and to then step into what are all the systemic and structural ways in which we weed out ideas simply because it doesn't look the way we expect it to look. See, now you've got me worried that the
0: Thinker's 50 is actually a part of the problem here because we're saying only certain people have great ideas. And maybe, no, we're not really saying that. We're just saying here are some great ideas. You guys have been idea hunting. hunting for a while, right? I know right? we have. And I think that the point is that we are shifting increasingly away from the individuals and we are very much more interested in the ideas. And I think the democratization of ideas is something that's it's the very future. close to our hearts. It is the
1: future. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it... Uh, I think m- my best guess is that less than 50% of the ideas of the, that we have are actually uh, validated right now, which means that we have 50% more innovation, 50% more solutions, 50% just bottom line, more money to be made um, by letting us actually tap into this other group of ideas. Now you mentioned the future. You, were,
0: um, you won our Future Thinker Award a couple of years ago, and now it's, it's been fantastic to see you come through into the full ranking. Um, and we'd like to encourage more people, you know, down that route. But what does the future hold for you? What's next for Neela for Merchant? The book's coming out. There'll obviously be, you know, a lot of attention on the book. I would think.
1: Well, so I, I mentioned to you that uh, obviously I wrote a book that's aimed towards an individual for how do you claim your own idea, how do you find those group of people so that you no longer have to conform, and then how do you scale that idea to be big. Um, but I also think there's a real opportunity, and I, and I took a chapter of the book to explain what are all the scaffolding and systems that we use in the talent world today to actually weed people out rather than bring them in. And we have to redesign a lot of the systems by which we think about the conventional way we think about talent. And so I think there's a real opportunity to come in and advise companies and help them to do that.
0: And what sort of things are you talking about? You're talking about, um, as you say, we we tend to, with this algorithm of CVs and you're you're recruiting for a job, you're looking for a reason to discard them in order to... Right. So how can you change that?
1: Well, I think the first thing is we often are sorting by um, job titles and degrees and so on. And I find it much more interesting what your passions are. So what I'd really want to know is, Des, what is it you're super passionate about today? And how have you manifested that so far? And what would be the next practical application for you to go explore that area? And that would tell me a lot more about what are you naturally good at and how could we monetize that. That would be more insightful than, I once ran this company and I once did this job 20 years ago kind of thing, right? Um, Because that shows responsibilities, but it doesn't show what you're passionate about. And this is going to be the big shift. We're going to go from credentialing to purpose, credentialing to passion. So figuring out what is it you're super excited about that even if no one was looking, you'd want to see done in the world, and how do we actually find a way to reward those systems?
0: It's interesting so we, we we sometimes we teach on MBA programs and we, we often have this conversation towards the end of the course where we say, tell us where you come from mm. and where you think you might be going. And they look at us a bit confused. They're the very bright, very, very clever MBA students from all over the world and they, they sort of look at you and, and we say, because you're going to be going into the next phase where you're probably looking for jobs or starting businesses. And the fact that you've got an MBA doesn't differentiate you. What differentiates you is your this What you care about. Exactly. Yeah, what you care about and, what, and what, what you bring to the party. And it takes them, even though they're very smart people, it takes them a, a moment to start to understand that, that they're in a room full of people and it's the, it's actually the one thing that they've all got in common, the NBA. <laughs> That's right. So they have to kind of rework it. but And then you get the most marvelous stories.
1: Well, you know, I remember for a long time in my career, I used to think that getting a degree the way I did, because I went to community college, and then I went to a program where I could work uh, for my four-year university, and then same thing for my master's program. So I think, let's see, math-wise, I think it was 15 years or something for me to get uh, my degree. And the thing, though, that actually probably helps me access Um, and have conversations with people of different levels is because it took me 15 years to get my degree. Like the, I didn't go to Harvard, I didn't go to a certain pedigree. And so I'm asking a different set of questions because of how I was exposed to learning, right? Which was much more self-driven. So what used to be a quote unquote negative in my own mind, oh, I didn't get to go to a top school, probably is also the reason why I'm looking for a divergent set of ideas. Thank you, Neil for Merchant. Thank you.
0: This is a Thinkers 50 podcast brought to you in partnership with the Brightline Initiative, bridging the gap between strategy development and implementation.